As I mentioned last week, the bigger context of the chapter is that we're probably in, the, in Wednesday of Holy Week. The following day, uh, on Thursday, is when the Last Supper happens and the arrest of Jesus. Uh, and on this day, on this Wednesday, Jesus begins to teach what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew uh, 24 and 25. He speaks about the second coming, he speaks about the future, and he speaks in terms of prophecies. Of course, there are many challenges as we try to understand exactly how these prophecies will play out. Uh, the point uh, becomes more obvious to us as we look at these five, uh, the string of five parables that, are, uh, that happen towards the end of chapter 24 and, and in chapter 25 that Jesus begins to teach. And these are listed again in the bulletin with their references. The first <clears throat> describes how the owner of the house didn't know when the thief was coming, and so likewise Jesus may come when he's not expected. The second parable describes the return of a, a master who came while his servant was behaving badly, and, his, and the servant was surprised that the master came so uh, came home sooner than he was expecting. Our parable from last week, of course, the wise and foolish young women. Uh, described the bridegroom coming after an unexpected delay, so coming later than he was expected. And the fourth is our text this morning, which is challenging the people of God to be productive in the kingdom until Jesus returns, whenever that may be. The fifth parable is about the sheep and the goats and what happens at the very end in the assignment of eternal Destinies. I had never really seen before until this study over the last couple of weeks that these parables really line up uh, in this section. And Jesus is using them to, to show us all of the different ways that we can sort of understand uh, and how to think about these words that he's coming back and of what's coming for our future and the future of the world. So we'll look together here at Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 14. Again, again connecting us with the parable before, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, and to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, and see, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness." The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents, and see, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed, so I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that I, when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone 
who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we need to understand it. It is, as you've described for us, our, our life, our food. So help us now. Teach us and feed us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting themes of superhero movies and superhero literature is this idea that the hero's superpowers make something of this sort of two-edged sword of blessing and curse, right? In Spider-Man, I'm thinking of the ones from a few years ago. I know they're making new superhero movies all the time. But, um, you know, the one with Tobey Maguire where he learns the painful lesson that when he decided not to do the right thing, when he decided not to stop the bad guy, then um, something really bad happened to his to his Uncle Ben. And remember how Uncle Ben always used to tell him, because with great power comes great responsibility. And Spider-Man, of course, had to deal with this crisis that he couldn't avoid being Spider-Man, that he would always have to be on guard, that he would always have to be vigilant, that he would always have to be protecting the innocent and catching the bad guys, no matter if he wanted to live that life or not. Um, a generation before, of course, we remember Superman 2. Some of us, maybe, back in the early 1980s. Remember that scene where Superman decides... I think it was Superman 2, right? Where he decides to renounce his superpowers and become just an ordinary guy. And he's in this restaurant, and, he gets, and these guys start picking on him, and he gets in an argument with them, and, and he kind of gets beat up. And he actually starts bleeding. And he's like, you know, whoa, what's going on? I've never been actually hurt before. And he found out, of course, through the course of the movie, that he couldn't be normal. That he couldn't just live as an ordinary guy with Lois Lane. Like, he had to be Superman. And so he would always bear that responsibility of being a superhero. And, of course, he gained his powers back. And it was selfish and wrong for him not to use his gifts for good. That the kind of power that was a gift also required that the gift be used for the benefit of the world. For everyone course, except for the bad guys. And our parable this morning has this same theme. I don't know where the superheroes get it from, but it has this theme, right? That with being given much, there is a responsibility that we would account for what has been given to us. As we turn to the parable, we need to uh, unpack it a bit, see our characters, see the setting of it understand what Jesus wants to teach us. It's, it's pretty straightforward. We have an entrusting master who gives his servants uh, certain responsibilities before he leaves. Uh, this is his money. He places it in the possession of his servants. Then the master leaves and is gone a long time. The timing of this parable is less important and critical than the first three in this string of five parables. The focus is not on the timing of the return of the master, but the focus is on what are the servants doing and their activities while, uh, with his resources while he's away? The servants are given talents, and the talent, of course, was not what we think of today. It was a unit of currency. It was the largest unit of, of money in the ancient world, uh, in the Mediterranean Greek world. It was something like uh, 20 years' worth of wages. 
So what these guys are being given is really large sums. These are high-level servants. Only a very rich master would entrust this kind of money. Think of it as a million dollars, $400,000, $200,000, something like that. Huge amounts of money. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. It's a great gift that these uh, servants are being given to steward the resources of the master. That's their job. That's what they do as, as servants. And uh, to do the master's bidding, and to manage his resources. And he's giving them a great opportunity to do so. And much was at stake for the master in terms of the parable of, for the faithfulness of his servants and what happened with the money. So the talent, of course, was this unit of money. It wasn't what we think of today, but it's really interesting that if you look up talent on dictionary.com, it shows that it comes from the ancient Greek through Latin to Old English. And on dictionary.com, it refers to this passage by biblical reference and says that a talent, the concept of it, what we think of as a talent, a gift, a skill, an ability, comes directly into our language from this biblical story from the mouth of Jesus. Dictionary.com. I found it this week. So, verse 15 is telling us that the servants got different amounts which were given according to his ability. And this uh, raises some questions for us, perhaps. The amounts given are different, indicating that not everyone has the same level of ability. And this, I think, reflects the reality of life the way that we see it. Not everyone has the same kinds of skills and ability and talents and opportunities. Even if I practiced every day, I would not be able to run an Olympic caliber sprint or do the high jump or the deadlift, you know, maybe curling. (laughs) But nothing related to gymnastics, right, or downhill skiing or any other sort of Olympic activity. And I don't know if this is the same for you. I'm probably speaking more to the men among us, but it's kind of sad, isn't it? I mean, I watched enough sports movies over the years. You know, you think of Hoosiers and Rudy and all of these movies where if you work hard enough, you can play on the Notre Dame football team. You know, if you work hard enough, if you, if you persevere through all of the obstacles out on the other side, you achieve your goal. And then there comes a day when you realize that that's Hollywood and that you actually won't ever play a professional or a college sport. And then you have to come to grips with that and there's a day of of mourning. (laughs) And what I'm saying is that it's not, don't, I'm not, I'm not saying don't dream, don't work hard, don't follow your passions. I'm saying I can't choose my gift. I can't choose the way that God's made me and wired me and gifted me any more than these servants can demand how much money they're entrusted from their master. The master's the one who decides. The master's the one who entrusts. He entrusts in various ways. He trusts, entrusts in varying degrees, not with the, some kind of egalitarian sense of fairness in which everyone gets the same thing. Not everyone is working with the same set of resources, according to the parable and according to life the way that we see it. When we transfer the parable to the spiritual realities that Jesus is describing, we find that God has ordained that his people would have a variety of talents and gifts and abilities. And the Bible describes how every believer has spiritual gifts, 
We find a number of lists of those in the New Testament in various places of Scripture. There are some passages listed in your bulletin in the sermon outline. There are many more, of course, that we could point to. And they tell us that God gives various kinds of gifts in various measure to his people. Ephesians 4, 7 reminds us that it's all of grace. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We can't choose our gifts. We should see that they are truly gifts. That they are unearned manifestations of God's grace. As is the creation itself for us to enjoy. As the grace of the rain and the sun. The grace of life itself. The grace of every breath that we are given on loan to us. Remember, life is loaned to us, we saw in the parable of the rich fool a number of weeks ago. So that's kind of a long setup to get us here to the parable. What happens in the parable itself? Verse 16. Uh, The man who had, the, the master goes on the journey, the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. There are two paths here among the servants. The five-talent servant and the two-talent servants use what is entrusted to them for the sake of the master. They take action immediately. We don't know what instructions he gave them, what they did, but they worked at it. We can, uh, and we can sort of read this as present-day capitalists and think about wise investment practices. I don't think, you know, the idea is that they doubled their money. Um, I think the amount is not the important part. Uh, In a a sort of parallel account in the parable of the sower in the soils, remember that the seed that fell on the good soil produced a crop of 100 or 60 or 30 times as much. So the point is that there's an increase, that there's an abundance, that there is an even surprisingly large uh, multiplication happening in terms of the use of these resources. That's what the two did. The one-talent servant, uh, not so much. Commentators discuss whether it was wise for him to bury the talent as he did. In the ancient world, one approach to keeping something safe was to bury it. And we read the treasure, you know, the the parable of the the buried treasure hidden in the field. Um, There may have been something reasonable in the approach of this man, but as we get into his dialogue with the master, we'll have to kind of evaluate a little more closely what he was thinking and why he was doing it. So, what happens next? Verse 19, After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. This settling of accounts reminds us of many parables. The landowner calls the dishonest manager in to give an account. The two debtors are called before the king to give an account of his money. Romans 14.12 says that each of us will give an account of himself before God. 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us that our work will be tested. These parables and these teachings in Paul remind us and emphasize for us that this kind of reckoning is unavoidable, that each which awaits each person before God, that connected with the return of Christ is this prospect of a final evaluation of our lives, of all of our lives, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds of each one who has ever lived. The first two servants have an identical encounter with the master. If we read that in verse 20, we see, you know, the man who had, you know, comes back in and says, you gave me five, I've 
gained five more. And then his master replied, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The same exact response with the two-talent servant. The servants are praised for their faithfulness. They're not praised for their investment gains. The master doesn't say, good job doubling my money. He says, good job being faithful. And so, again, this indicates to us that the amount of the gain wasn't, wasn't the issue. The real issue is what's going on in the heart of the servant. Is there faith there? And faith has its reward. Faithfulness, it has its reward. The master invites the servant into his happiness, into his joy. And the joy of the master is like that, isn't it? It must be shared with others. It's not hoarded for himself. Part of the point of joy and happiness is that it must be shared. And I think this is a beautiful picture, of course, of being brought into an eternal and life-giving relationship with God. It's characterized by happiness and love and joy and all of the rest. It reminds us of the parables of Luke 15 where the people who were lost were being found and, and they said, rejoice with me. That there's something to be shared about joy in God and the joy that God has to share for his people and his creation. Not so again with the one talent servant, verse 24. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. It's really interesting that this man begins with a defense. He's proactively pleading the case. And what's, the, what's really the problem in his mind? It's the master's fault. Right? One commentator said it this way. This little outburst mixes insults and excuses. As the servant saw it, he stood in a no-win situation. If he toiled and gained, the master would seize the proceeds. But if he toiled and lost, he would be punished. Either way... He saw nothing positive. I think that's really wise insight into what's going on here. What's wrong with the servant? What are his words saying about his character and his heart? He wasn't looking to please his master. He was looking for his own personal gain. And when he did his own personal gain-loss calculation, he decided the safest thing to do was just to bury the treasure. He was motivated, so he was looking for himself. He was motivated by fear, which is the opposite of the response of faith of the other two servants. And then he comes and he openly questions and doubts and charges and, and, and maligns the character of the master. He feels that the master's power, his sovereignty is a bad thing, that the master uses his power for his own greed and for his own gain, that he's a hard man to please. 
There's more that we could say about this speech, but it, what is it revealing? It's revealing a heart of unbelief. It's revealing a heart of, of jealousy, a heart of resentment, a heart that shakes its fist at the master. And it's interesting also that the master doesn't actually dispute the charges against him. He repeats them in the servant's own words. But he says, those, those reasons that you gave are not a good reason for what you did. You could have at least put the money in the bank so there would be an, a bit of interest gained back to me. The prob- problem with the servant from the master's perspective is what? That he's wicked and he's lazy. And in the end, what was loaned to him is taken away. And he's assigned to a terrible fate. The description of this fate is similar to the one given of the unfaithful servant in the second of the string of five parables in Matthew 24, 51. It's clearly a description of hell. As Jesus spoke about many times, Pastor Steve reminded us in the sermon a couple of weeks ago in the parable of of, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. So let's reflect a bit on what the parable is trying to teach us this morning. What's the theology here? Well, it's another parable of the kingdom of heaven, clearly pointing to the final arrival of the kingdom. It begins with this, again, it will be like, describing that this is another parable about what, the second com- what will happen in the second coming. And the parable, this one, plays off of the previous one. The timing isn't the issue here. The question is, how are God's people to live faithfully until he comes back, whenever that is? How are we to use what's been entrusted to us from the master for the advancement of his kingdom? Because if the parable means anything, it means that how the master's servants live is important to the master. And yet, it goes to a deeper level. It's not just about how they live and what they do, it's, about, it's not just about outward actions. It's not really about doubling the master's money. The contrast is about how the servants relate to the master. Do they seek to serve him? Do they seek to live a life of faith? Or are they living in fear of him and hating his rule in their lives? The parable doesn't give us any servants who are giving no, given no talents. I think that is clear that this parable, that everyone in this parable, everyone is a servant of God. Everyone has been given gifts of life and has been been given grace in God's world as God has apportioned to them. And all of them, everyone, to varying degrees with different gifts, have experienced the kindness of God. And some respond with faith, and some do not. So the parable points us to the reality of this scenario, that this is what happens. This is what will happen when Jesus returns. Some will be rewarded and some will be cast out. There's no way to to get around this conclusion in this string of parables of what this is really about, what Jesus is really teaching. And the second theological point then comes right here. The master of the parable is capable of welcoming and rejoicing with his servants. He rewards, he blesses, he invites The same master is also capable of rebuking and casting out. He revokes, he punishes, he condemns. And, of course, it's difficult for us to make sense of such a God, even though he shows himself in this way very clearly, consistently, through the Bible. 
The God of the Bible is full of love and mercy. The God of the Bible is full of justice and wrath, and we can't exclude either attribute. We can't try to make him balance out according to the way we would want him to be. That's idolatry, right? It's making God, making God of our own minds, of our own images, what we, what we think he should be like. But this is the God who is. This is the God who reveals himself in Scripture as one who has both love of an infinite and amazing kind and also has strictness and wrath and a perfect sense of justice. What are we to do as a result of hearing this parable? As I've been reflecting on the passage, it occurred to me, the first question is, is are you, do you believe? Do you believe in this master? Is your faith placed in him? I mean, that's the first question. That's the, the basic thing that separates these, the, the two servants from the one servant, is do they have faith? Or do they shake their fist at God? The second question for us who believe, um, maybe even for us who have been around in the church for a while, is this. Do you believe that God can and will produce a multiplying harvest in his kingdom through your life? As we've considered these servants, the first two trusted God with what he had entrusted to them. They worked diligently. Presumably they took risks. They exercised their faith in order to please him. They saw the great value of what they had been given. They saw that they had a responsibility before their master. Now, they're not earning their way into the kingdom. They're already in the kingdom. Right? There's, no mer- there's no merit going on here. This isn't work your way in kind of thing. This is, if you're in the kingdom, then there are blessings and responsibilities that are the part of the story here. So, no matter what your age or your stage in life or your circumstances or your abilities, the question is, do you think that God wants to use you in his kingdom? Like, do you really think so? I had to ask myself that question this week. Do I really think that God wants to use me in his kingdom? Like, he might bless others in the church through your gifts. Like, he might expand the ministries of our church through your talents. Like, he might put you in a position to uh, speak of his goodness and his grace with a coworker or an unbelieving uh, friend or a fellow student. Like he might call you to serve his church in a different part of the world. Like he might help you teach our children that they would be, uh, that they can trust him when life is is hard. Like he might use you to befriend a new family visiting the church and, and extend and serve them through hospitality. Like he might answer your prayers for the sake of his kingdom. Do you believe that God can and will do exciting things in your life? No matter what your gifts are, they're effective in the kingdom because he gave them to you. And sometimes it's hard to really believe it, right? It's not easy to believe this. It takes faith. Children, do you know that the Bible teaches that you teach adults about what faith really looks like? That Jesus says that we are to have faith like children. Right? Teenagers, the same way. You, you, growing up 
in this world, going to school, living your lives in ways that, in a world that's hostile to your beliefs, you can show us and encourage the hearts of the adults in our congregation by your testimony, by your faithfulness in walking with the Lord. Each and every person in the body of Christ has enormous value in God's sight and has enormous value in the life of the whole body. That's the first question is, do you believe that? Is it an active part of your life? Are you, are you looking for opportunity to say, God, use me today? Uh, I don't know what that looks like, but use me today in a way that, that might even surprise me. And then, you know, more specifically, maybe, as we think about application, there, there, it comes out very clearly here that we're given spiritual gifts. And that's something the Bible teaches. There's a lot more that we can say about spiritual gifts than we can say in the next few minutes. But I would ask, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? You know, the Bible lists particular spiritual gifts. And it says that they are used for building up of the body. And so how are we using our spiritual gifts in the kingdom of God? How are we using our spiritual gifts in the life of the church? Everyone has spiritual gifts. The whole church benefits when we use them in service of one another. The body grows stronger as all parts of it do their job as a body. As they're connected together, all connected to, G- to Jesus, who's the head. So the parable, I think, is challenging us to consider our own unique gifts and callings and abilities and experiences, trusting that the God who has given them to us will use them in and through us for his good purposes, for the building up of his kingdom. With great power comes great responsibility. And the biblical picture is that great power is at work in the lives of God's people. Superhero-like power, right? Supernatural power from the Spirit working in the lives of his people. Poured out into our hearts. So, Think about this this week. What are your spiritual gifts? Pray that God would show you what they are and how to use them for his kingdom. I would do a couple notes here of warning as we think about this. Um, one, there, there, there are some dangers when we learn about our spiritual gifts. Um, one principle is that's true for every single one of us. What we're, also, what we're often, often, what we're gifted in is the same can be the same areas in which we are most susceptible to pride and self-righteousness. It's a double-edged sword, right? If it comes very naturally for you to serve others, if you enjoy it, if that's your gift, then it can be very easy to wonder, why why am I the only one serving? What are these other people doing? Why aren't they serving? You know? It's a a natural temptation. We have to be on our guard to, to be aware of our own exercise of our gifts and how that can lead us to pride and self-righteousness. And we also have to figure out uh, and use wisdom as we think about how do our gifts fit with what the body actually needs. Sometimes what we think of might be ideal for us in using our gifts is not exactly what the church needs in the moment. And so there's this relationship and then part of the job of the leadership of the church is to help us... Uh, build up the body in, in ways that, that, that fit. 
in ways that work together, that, that we in the leadership are saying, you know, we're seeing the gifts of the body and we're plugging them in and we're seeing how does the Lord uh, giving us gifts as a church that then propel us out into the future. We can't do every kind of ministry. We can't do everything. But these are the things that we're, that we're committed to. And then how is God equipping our church to do the things that he has put on, uh, on our hearts to do? I'll use a bit of a ridiculous example here. Um, suppose someone says, my gift is, is this. Ministering to women who like to take cross-country trips on motorcycles, who are over 45 but under 55, who are interested in knitting and skydiving and, you know, TV game shows from the 1970s. <laughs> you know, we can, we can say, this is what my gift is. But we also have to ask the question, like, how does that fit in with the church? And how is that being a part of the body? And maybe we can't do exactly what we think we want to do, but maybe God is opening doors for us to do exactly what he wants to do in and through us in the life of the church. One final thing. What governs the use of our spiritual gifts, what governs the use of our talents and the resources in God's kingdom, must always be love. The famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that's always at every wedding, right? You know, love is patient, love is kind. It's, what does it come right after? 1 Corinthians 12 is a lengthy discussion about the use of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. About how the ear can't say to the eye, I have no need of you. About how the parts of the body can't quarrel about which is better. About how God gave some to be apostles and some to be teachers and some to be servants and some to be administratively gifted, right? And then at the end of this section about how the body is to work together to serve and use their gifts, Paul says, I'll show you a still more excellent way. The way in which all gifts must be used. So Paul says, if I'm a good teacher but I have no love for my students, then I gain nothing. Right? If I'm a good servant and I can give my body up to be burned as a martyr, but have not love, I'm nothing. Love guides the use of every gift in the life of the believer and in the practice of the church. And we need to be reminded of that. So consider these things this morning. Ask God, how do you want to use me? Do you have bigger plans for my life than I might expected? Than I might have expected? Or that I might have considered? More specific ways in which you'll use me? Whatever your gifts are, they're important. They're important because they've been given to you by God. They're important because you're part of the church for the building up of the whole body. And pray about that. Ask God to show you, even this week, what, do, what, what has he wired you for? And how can that be a blessing uh, and, and use in his kingdom and a blessing to everyone around you, always being used uh, in love and guided by him. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we're thankful that you have given good gifts to your people. Help us to really see that. Help us to, to, help us to trust that, that you have equipped your church for what it needs for what she needs to do your will. Help us to value the gifts of one another, Father, even if they're very different than ours. Uh, Protect us from the pride that comes from 
of wanting to use our gifts in our own way, or the pride that says that, that we're better at doing things than others. Lord, we pray that you would indeed build up your body and strengthen us. Uh, we know that you have empowered and equipped us. Use us for your good, uh, for your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name.